Welcome back to the Shine Like Stars podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Corpin, and guys, I'm truly excited for today's episode. Uh, I have Forbes' Scott Mendelson on the podcast today, who, like I said, writes for Forbes. You might know him from Twitter. He's got over 30,000 followers over there, and he's Forbes' leading box office analyst. Um, I've been reading Scott's work for a long time now. Um, he does, like, I love his weekly roundups of the box office or digest, or however you want to put it. Uh, about the new releases and films that have been in theaters for a little bit, uh, to the point that it inspired me to do that. Um, not to the same level as Scott does, but he's been a big inspiration on my own writing career, and I'm so grateful for him taking the time to sit down in between screenings and uh, his three kids. I, you know, I, I can't express my gratitude enough for him giving me over an hour of his time. So. On this episode, we try to talk about the spring season, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, kind of talking about some of the titles coming up, how Scott's kind of forecasting the box office, and uh, we do get off on quite a few tangents, um, but I really think this was a lot of fun. Uh, again, Scott, thank you so much if you're listening, and without further ado, I'll just get right into the episode. All right, well, thank you, Scott, for joining me. Uh, how is your day going so far? Uh, not too bad. Not too um, bad. Yeah. Uh, the kid's home with an unofficial, she's really not sick COVID exposure situation, but she's doing fine. She's got a day off of school. Uh, so, we just got her for a test. She's negative. Everybody's happy. So is she the one, did you take her to Jackass last night? No, that was my middle son. Oh, okay. 10 years old. Perfect oh. demographic. Well, um, I mean, yeah. And did, what, uh, did you guys get any like little items when you were there? Well, they gave us uh, shot glasses for. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was an investor. It wasn't a press screening. Oh. It was what AMC will sometimes do an early screening nationwide, very under the radar, not terribly advertised for their quote, investors. And it's, it's an email list that I'm on because if I have a choice to driving down to Hollywood to see it at four o'clock or waiting three hours and driving 15 minutes to Thousand Oaks at seven o'clock, I'm going to take the later, you know, I'd rather pay for the ticket and save the drive time. Oh, completely fair. And how did your son like it? How did you like it? He liked it a lot. I mean, you know, this was both of our first exposures to the Jackass franchise. I mean, I'm aware of it. It's always been sort of on my radar, but it's just nothing that I've really ever gotten into. So this was my first, this was my first rodeo. Uh, unintended and not intended. Um, and they're not, I, I can see why they're popular. There's a certain gee whiz, open hearted sincerity. Uh, yes, they're vulgar. Yes, they're crass. But to a certain extent, they're not mean. I mean, yeah, obviously they torture each other, but you know, no one goes in there with their eyes closed. Um, and there's a certain, and maybe this is a sign of how society is otherwise degenerated elsewhere, but something that once represented sort of the nadar of junk food culture now seems like a vaguely healthy, non-toxic form of masculine male bonding. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And my son knows not to try any of the activities at home. He knows not to say any of those words at school. Um, and without going into details, yes, there's gross out humor. Yes, there's some full, fr- there's some male nudity, but in terms of, you know, objectionable content, you know, I'd rather show him that than something incredibly violent. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's funny that you said it's your first um, exposure to the franchise. Same for me here. I know, like, I was aware of, like, the TV series, I think, and some of the movies. But I wasn't sure because I was going to ask you, is there usually that much male genitalia in these movies? But Allegedly, I guess... there's more of that than normal. Okay. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put words 
this in anybody's mouth, but I'm under the impression that there's more intercast stunt work and less, you know, freak out a bystander on the street with a harmless prank stick because of COVID, because you couldn't do as much of that. Okay. okay. Um, and I think, you know, I, I maybe it was a way for them to continue doing what they're doing while still acknowledging the evolving social code uh, in a way that I think they do in a very witty way. Um, I don't want to give it away, but in context, there's a very funny and appropriate conversation about consent um, that occurs right during the middle of a prank. Um, they have a, a few new cast members this time around, one of whom is a woman, two of whom are black. And that is something that they don't make a big deal about it to their credit, but it's certainly there under the surface. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's not quite race blind and gender blind casting, but it's also not, you know, shine a spotlight on our diversity kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's nice. It's, it's refreshing. And whether or not the film is intended as a true pass the baton on entry, I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 it's not obnoxious about that either. Yeah. Although there is one stunt toward the end that involves an injury so awful that they can, are they going to kill off of an original character here? Um, obviously not really, because we would have found out about it. Um, but there is a certain, oh my God, is this going to turn into a Kylo Kills Han situation? Yeah, and I don't know, maybe this, is there going to be a legacy sequel in 20 years when they're all exactly. in canes and wheelchairs? Um, but yeah, we'll talk about Jackass in, in, a, in a few minutes. But for those who don't know, Scott, um, you're kind of like Forbes' box office expert, I would say. Yes. Um, I just wanted to ask you really quickly, how did you find this niche? I think it's such a unique, because I feel like, honestly, like, and I mean this truthfully, that uh, when I read about box office, it's always your stuff. And you kind of at least inspired me to kind of do that. But You've been doing it, and this just seems like your thing. I mean, you do write reviews and stuff, but how did you kind of come into this? Well, first of all, thank you. You know, it's become even nichier, I would say, over the last several years as more of the emphasis in journalism, and I say this without criticism, has gone into streaming and, and gone into sort of dissecting an obsession over fan-specific properties, uh, because that's where the clicks are. That's where the interest is. You know, I would say I'm probably one of maybe a half a dozen people left of a certain level that still would consider themselves mostly a box office junkie, box office pundit, who happens, you know, obviously by default, I talk about trailers, I drop on marketing, I do reviews, but, you know, for people that only know me for one thing, yeah, domestic international box office. Um, you know, I spent five years teaching myself how Chinese box office works, only for it to no longer matter. Yeah. Um, except in terms of big Chinese blockbusters that will make 10 cents outside of, of, of the territory. <laughs> I'm, I am looking forward to seeing the Battle of Lightning 2, excuse me, the Battle at Lightning Gym 2 sometime mm -hmm. later this week if I can get a, if I can sneak onto the IMAX lot to do it. Oh, I didn't know they were even releasing it because usually with those they're Chinese, not. oh, they're not. Oh. Me a favor. <laughs> oh, okay. Because well. it's doing very well for IMAX. So sometimes they'll let, you know, if, they have, if it's available, they'll let me go in and see a, see a showing of it. Oh, that's, that's really cool. And I mean, this year's been kind of a weird start to the year. I mean, Scream was kind of the big, I mean, well, Spider-Man's been the story, right? I'm sure you've yes. even probably gotten sick of writing about Spider-Man every week. Um, yes, but, I mean, no, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, I tell you, after the last two years, it's, it's been wonderful to pull out stats that I thought I was, I was worried I'd never have to use again. <laughs> that's, you know, that's it's, 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 I can use the all-time adjusted to most gross list again. You know, I can use the 100 Million Losers Club again. <laughs> for, for those who don't know, that, that's sort of an unofficial club that started with Twilight Break, uh, New Moon. And those are about a dozen or so movies that have opened so big 
and dropped so far that they grossed less than a hundred or more than a hundred million dollars less in weekend two than they did in weekend one. It's one of those clubs that was like it's bad, but it still means you're pretty freaking huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then, I guess with Scream, I just wanted to mention because the big thing for them is that they they passed Scream Force total gross in like yeah in a week in a week, right? So that's that's crazy. Um, I don't know. It seemed like it wasn't taking too big of drops. You know, I don't know how it's going. What is it now in its third weekend? It's, a, week? it's just finished its third weekend. It's okay. about, I, I don't know the weekday updates off the top of my head, but it was at 61 and change as of its 17th day. Okay. Um, it's made about 106 million worldwide, which is more than Scream 4, which made $98 million. And for what it's worth, this film only cost $24 million, which is what Scream 2 cost, inflation notwithstanding, back in 1997, while Scream 3 and Scream 4 cost $40 million apiece. So I'm uh, amazed that you were even able to <laughs> think of those numbers. Have to, do you have those numbers memorized? So you... There's lots of really important information that I don't have up here, <laughs> so I have room for useless information like that. No, that's that's truly amazing. Um, and so now that it's now that we're in February, I wouldn't say there's a lot of stuff coming out, but this weekend does have two big releases. We just talked about Jackass a little bit um, and Moonfall, but I guess we'll start with Jackass because uh, I was looking at their grosses again. I guess so. Neither of us really have much experience with the franchise, um, so I don't know. Are you? I, I did read you. You had a potential article or an article about it potentially being a big opening. What do you have any sort of forecast or what are you thinking for Jackass forever? forecasting has been tough over the last two years for a tracking is a lot harder to come by. I have to pull it from their teeth. You know, it used to be something that I just, you know, we got three weeks out. Here's the first pre-release studio tracking, which again was always supposed to be sort of a, a marketing tool uh, in terms of this giving guidance to the studios in those last three weeks, where their marketing soft spots might be, where they're doing well in terms of demographics, or if they're doing so bloody well, they can just sit back and relax. Um, and over the last you know, 15 years, that those numbers have been a lot more public. They've often been used for better or worse as a preemptive battering ram if a movie isn't tracking as high as otherwise it might be. Um, but that those numbers have been very hard to come by in the last two years because there's no reason for the studios to release them. I mean, there, there's no, you know, they don't get anything out of it. You know, even if a film comes on the boards, as they say, with high numbers, they're still hoping to open to open bigger. And if a film is tracking for 50 and opens to 50, that's still less fun than if nobody knew what it was going to open to in the first place. Um, so, I mean, the last Jackass movie opened to $50 million in October 2010. It was in 3D during the, you know, within a year of, of Avatar doing you know, making 3D mainstream for a few years. Uh, those who did see it in theaters will argue it was one of the best uses of 3D for any post-Avatar release, and I believe that. It's the same way that, you know, unapologetic junk food like Resident Evil, the uh, uh, Afterlife, which also opened in September 2010, really knew what they were doing with that format in a way that they were allowed to be sort of unapologetically pulpy with, you know, stuff flying at the screen and playing with the camera in a way that, you know, maybe more, you know, upscale, prestigious movie wouldn't be. Um, this film is not in 3D. Um, I don't know if it's playing in large format screens or not. I know Moonfall has the IMAX screens. Right. Um, but Moonfall and Jackass Forever are interesting phenomenon in that they're both franchises that, or 
in the case of Roland the Moonfall, a Roland Emmerich disaster film, which used to represent, to a certain extent, the nadar of big-budget popcorn trash filmmaking. And I, that's not a quality judgment. It's just, you know, they weren't expected to be up for Oscars. But now, because so much of pop culture has become somewhat homogenized, I would say films like Jackass Forever and Moonfall and No Time to Die have almost come to represent sort of aspirational filmmaking. They're not a superhero movie. They're not a comic book adaptation. They're not meant to spin off a thousand different streaming franchises. Um, so what once used to be the nadar of, of cinema has now always become this sort of, where even the snobs are looking forward to it because it's least, at least it's not this thing. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, and I was just going to say, well, I was just going to ask you, so Moonfall, I mean, I, the marketing for that's been weird where I feel like there hasn't been a lot, not as bad as another film I'm going to mention in a second, but um, I mean, that has a good cast, right? So is that kind of why you think it might have, because I just, honestly, I mentioned it to people because I have the screening for it tonight and nobody knew what I was talking about. In a pre-COVID world, I would say Moonfall would be DOA. Mm. You know, it would be a, it would do about as well as Dean Devlin's uh, Geostorm in late 2017. Yes, late 2017. Um, that film opened with 13 million dollars domestic, ended with 33. Did a halfway decent 221 worldwide, but on a 120 million dollar budget. Um, this one cost 140. It was self financed, so you know, Lionsgate Angels domestic and different. Studios will handle different overseas. So basically, everyone only hopes to lose a little bit of money. Um, but the question is, you know, is a film like this, which kind of represents the, you know, the ultimate, the kind of trash we miss seeing on the big screen kind of thing, will that allow it to perform better than it would have done in pre COVID times? Mm. Uh, I don't know. I do know that we've had a few films Godzilla v. Kong, Free Guy. I would say Dune. I would certainly say Scream. I might even argue Spider-Man No Way Home, which was always going to be a hit. But I think those are films that perform better than I would say they would have done under non-COVID, pre-COVID circumstances where they were playing in a normal tentpole and franchise-heavy theatrical marketplace. Okay. Okay. So I don't know. Yeah. And I think, like you said, I don't really know if Moonfall is going to be a franchise. I, you know, <laughs> it very well could be, you know, down the line. Um, and I don't know if this film was even on your radar. I just thought it'd be funny to mention was, well, did you know Liam Neeson has that movie coming out? Uh, Black, Black oh, of course. Okay. Oh, are you a Liam Neeson fan? <laughs> um, um, Blacklight. Blacklight. Open road again. Called. Yes. Uh, a movie that absolutely should have opened in the last two weeks. Mm. after Morbius moved off to April, you got, right. you know, nothing was on the 21st, nothing was on the 28th. Right. Something should have moved there. I mean, <laughs> it's not my money, but something should have moved there. Um, Blacklight is a Liam Neeson action picture, uh, and those films have provided halfway decent keep-the-lights-on earnings. You know, you had Honest Sleep in, I think, October 2020. You had The Marksman in January 2021. Mm -hmm. um, Again, this is we are many years out from when something like Lionsgate the Commuter could open with $13 million and leg out to 115 worldwide. Mm. You know, that was a slightly surprising result then, and it's certainly not going to happen now. Yeah. But, and I'm, 
Open and, Road and, has to know this. They have to know what cards they're playing with. And if they didn't think there was a way to make money with, you know, a 15, $20 million domestic total and whatever else they get from international or, you know, first TV pay window or streaming, they wouldn't be in the Liam Neeson action movie business. Yeah. I mean, luckily there, it's a nice alternative for those who don't want to go see marry me on Valentine's day weekend. Right. Cause that's the other one. I didn't know that was, did they say that was coming out on Peacock simultaneously? Yes. Like, because I just saw the ad for the last it. Month or so. Okay, because I thought it was just slapped on because I just saw an ad for it and they said stream also streaming on Peacock and I didn't know. Um, I do want to ask you about that one and also Death on the Nile is next week's big, uh, big release. That'll probably be the biggest. I mean, I know I, I actually forgot it was a not a sequel, but the the continuation of you know what Murder on the it's Orient Express. Is it a I mean, sequel? I, okay, I, I didn't know if I could yeah, say. I mean. In the sense that it's the same character, the same universe, the same writer, you know, writer director. Um, yeah, I would say it's a sequel. The same way that you know, Knives Out Two, which is going to be on IMAX, that's fair. Is going to be a sequel to you know, Knives Out. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if the only character they share is going to be you know, Benoit Blank. I mispronounced <laughs> that. I'm sorry. No, uh, you know, Daniel Craig's protagonist. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a sequel. Um, and yeah, that, that is another one that, you know, pre-COVID, I think would have done very well mm-hmm. because, you know, not to skip ahead, but Murder on the Own Express made a hundred million domestic, did yep. 350 worldwide on a $55 million budget. Um, and this was in late 2017, back when people would still show up for Fox movies. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and if I were an optimistic person, if I was a less pessimistic person, I might've argued that one of the reasons that Disney bought Fox was that they wanted a small foothold in the big movie for grown-ups marketplace but then that marketplace collapsed in 2018 you know when fox released a whole bunch of very good diverse original new to you adult skewing etc etc movies uh bad times of the el royale the darkest minds the hate you give love simon widows and the only ones that broke out was deadpool 2 and bohemian rhapsody right you know as i like to say we get the entertainment industry we pay for. We get the entertainment industry we deserve. We get the theatrical entertainment industry that we vote for with our wallet. If we don't show up to Warner Brothers' slate of just a movie movies like The Kitchen, The Way Back, uh, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah, you know, The Little Things, uh, Reminiscence, uh, Malignant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then it's our fault when they greenlight Joker 2 and nothing else. Right. And I do, before I yeah, continue that point, I did want to say I had the numbers written down for Murder on the Orient Express. And you basically hit it right on the head, which is impressive uh, once again. Um, and I do want to ask you about the Fox thing, because I feel like that's what some, you know, I'm you're on Twitter a lot, so you see it all the time. But people are always saying, oh, Disney's just burying every Fox property. How do you feel about that? Because it is weird, because I mean, what was it? The King uh, Kingsman came out recently and kind of didn't do well, but um, I'm trying to think what the one right before that was. Um, Nightmare Alley, West Side Story. Yes, yes. Uh, and The French Dispatch were the three That's... big award season films on the, the last duel. Oh, right. So, you know, it's, it's, and I think to a certain extent, I don't think any of those films would have been particularly huge in pre COVID. Maybe West Side Story. That's, yeah. But again, was that film Twitter and guilty as charged overestimating because we love Spielberg? Right. You know, if you don't love Spielberg, West Side Story really wasn't that that much of a big deal to you. You know, it's it's a remake or readaptation of a 50, 60 year old property, one that 
you know, half the movie going audience thinks, I love the original. I don't want to see another version of it. And the other half is, I don't like the original that much. Why do I want to see another version of it? Um, I do not think the Ansel Elgort online controversy made a dent. Mm -hmm. Just like I don't think anyone who otherwise was going to see Death in the Nile would give a darn about what Arnie Hammer did or didn't do in his free time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, however scandalous and and not good those allegations are, and they range from genuinely icky stuff like alleged, you know, sexual impropriety to cannibalism, which yeah, really? You think he eats people? Okay, maybe. Um, anyway, I, I don't think, for better or worse, I don't think online scandals like that affect mainstream audience interest. Mm. And you know, we've had plenty of evidence over that over the last several years. You know, Bohemian Rhapsody was film Twitter's least favorite movie. It made nine hundred and five million dollars worldwide. Um, Green Book was Twitter film Twitter's second least favorite movie. Not only did it win Best Picture, but it made $300 million worldwide. It was one of the biggest grossing Best Picture winners in a decade. Mm. And it did like $80 million in China, which mm. once again debunks the conventional wisdom of pre-COVID anyway, what does and doesn't make money in China. Um, and that, that's a whole different conversation. But the short of it is, you know, Chinese moviegoers are not the Borg. They have taste, and sometimes they like to see films that, the, to them, are foreign pictures, partially because they got plenty of Chinese biggies in their own backyard. They don't need to see a big, splashy, otherwise looks bad Hollywood blockbuster with a famous Chinese actor cameoing for 10 minutes <laughs> when they've got their own stuff delivering on the regular for the last six years. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I do like what you were saying about the whole, you know, all the controversies aside and stuff and how that might not affected but one i guess the next movie because i don't know what the biggest movie of february is but it probably would be uncharted right and i don't know when you're coming up with a comparison for that what do you think of are you thinking of a tom holland movie like a chaos walking a franchise movie <laughs> or are you thinking more of like a adventure like a tomb raider or an indiana jones you know because it's kind of, i don't think that genre has a lot no I, I i think sony is hoping for tomb raider yeah a film that you know slightly underperformed in north america because it got it was one of many movies that got steamrolled by Black Panther. To be fair, Black Panther was better. Um, but still, it did 275 on a $95 million budget. You know, we are allegedly getting a sequel at some point. Will anyone show up for the sequel? That's a good question. Will the sequel ever get finished? That's an even better question. <laughs> um, but I, I, what I find funny about Uncharted, another film that I think in pre-COVID times would have been DOA, but now might have a shot in hell because... You know, it's a bigger fish in a smaller pond. Um, you know, it, it stars Tom Holland. And for those young enough to remember what what happened with Titanic in late 1997, early 1998, when it opened with a solid 28 million, spent the next 15 weekends at the top of the box office and just steamrolled three months worth of small studio programmers. And one of the only films that came close to topping Titanic on its respective opening weekend, I think it was Titanic like 10th or 11th weekend or something, was you know, Man in the Iron Mask, which starred Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. Was the only reason that movie broke out that year. So the question is, obviously Star Power is very different, you know, 25 years later, but Will some of that Spider-Man No Way Home magic rub off on Uncharted, relatively speaking? Right. Uh, I don't know, but it could. 
you know, it's it's a halfway decent marketing campaign. Sony's putting a lot of money behind it. It looks fun in that Saturday matinee kind of way. Um, and every single person that's not Spider-Man No Way Home in the theater saw a trailer for Uncharted. Right. And do you think that because it's a video game property first, it, does that affect your, you know, kind of your way of thinking? Because it is, I think they were, I just listened to an interview today about Uncharted. I think they said the game sold, you know, 40 million copies. So it does have a big fan base behind it. Is this the kind of movie that is going to get those? I don't know, because this seems like they're trying to make it commercially appealing to the regular people because, oh, Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg. But the video game people, they still want to get them in too, you know? Fan bases for video games are a notoriously fickle bunch. <laughs> and again, that's not a criticism. You know, there's no law saying people that like A like to like Z. You know, in the same way that, you know, I, I always make a point when I talk about Hollywood movies doing well or not well in China, you know, it's not their responsibility to love Matrix Resurrections any more than it's our responsibility to love the wandering earth. You know, people like what they like. Um, but, by the way, if you want to see the wandering earth, that might be an interesting double bill with Moonfall. It's on Netflix right now. Oh. Um and I just lost the plot. Oh, yeah, video game movies. Video game <laughs> movies are an interesting bunch because, frankly, they've been on a roll of late. I mean, people like to talk about the video game curse, the video game curse. Yeah, in the last five or you know, five years, we've had Tomb Raider, Rampage, which made $430 million on a $120 budget. Uh, we had Resident Evil, the final chapter, which made $319 million on a, or excuse me, $412 million. I, hold on. Resident Evil, the final chapter, earned 312 million, including an incredible 159 in China alone on a $40 million budget. Then you had you know, Detective Pokemon, which made $450 million on a $150 million budget. And then right before COVID, we had Sonic the Hedgehog, which made $146 million domestic, 306 worldwide on an $82 million budget. And I think at worst, the second one's going to do about as well when it opens in April. So we've now had about a half a dozen video game movies that were, I would say, better than expected and did, about, did as well, if not better than expected commercially. And while it was not a hit because no one liked the first one, the Angry Birds movie two was a pretty damn good animated comedy. Now that may be by default, one of the very best video game movies ever made. Um, and it fell into what I, something that I like to call the Tomb Raider trap named after Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, which bombed in summer 2003, because while it was much better than the first Tomb Raider, the first Tomb Raider was terrible, and everybody that saw it didn't like it, so they didn't show up for the second one. Right. That's exactly what happened with Angry Birds. That's what happened, relatively speaking, with the Suicide Squad. Uh, that's what might happen with the Tomb Raider 2, which is that you know, the first Tomb Raider was okay. It was too much of a, you know, a prequel to the sequel. And you know what I'm talking about. When yes. The entire movie's a feature-length epilogue origin or prologue origin story. Now she's the Tomb Raider, you know, the Laura Croft you come and you know know and love in the next movie. Right. I paid to see her in this movie. Yeah. And actually, it's funny you mentioned that. I want that's my concern with Uncharted. Now I haven't played all the games through, but I played a little bit of the first one, and even in the opening scene alone, Nathan Drake is kind of like he's a jerk. You know, he's kind of he's more like in you know he's more like Harrison Ford. You could see him playing that kind of character. Mark Wahlberg. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And you're having Tom Holland do it, who's just going to be 
you know, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, how, you know, like I want to help everybody out. Um, I, I have a hard time believing, and I could, you know, maybe the movie will prove all of us wrong, but I have a hard time believing he's going to become the Nathan Drake of the video games relatively soon, you know. I like the idea, I mean, it's a terrible, but I like the idea that this happened because Tom Holland pitched basically a James Bond Jr. origin story, <laughs> yeah. and they said, no, that's stupid. <laughs> but let's let you ruin this other franchise with this stupid idea instead. Yeah, hey, it's possible. I remember oh. seeing that news and I laughed at that a little. It was, yeah. it was funny. It's like you know, I, you know, they were obviously selling the big air, you know, the airplane hangar, you know, the airplane yes. action sequence, which is very, you know, it's a it's a great scene in the game. It's also a ripoff of the Living Daylights. That film's action climax. You know, the first Timothy Dalton Bond film from 1987. Right. So. You're watching this movie, and it basically looks like what if James Bond Jr. starred in The Living Daylights? The problem is nobody likes James Bond Jr. If you were unlucky enough to be old enough to have watched that cartoon as a kid, you didn't like it. It was terrible. Um, yeah. And so we, it's, it's, it's this weird, you know, people don't need origin stories. People don't want origin stories, despite what they might tell you in test screening and or research marketing. Right. And it's bothering me because what you were just talking about, where it's like, oh, the character, maybe I was thinking of, maybe I was thinking of Spider-Man No Way Home, where it was like at the end, he's finally, now people are like, oh, look how brilliant they were. Now he's Spider-Man. It was, see, it was a six ar movie arc, and, you know, and I think that's what I was, because it was bugging me. You said yeah. that, I was, you know, and it was. At least there, they were subtle about it. Yes, that's, that's. Um, and also, to be fair, I have my nitpicks with all three of those movies, but they still told a standalone middle, you know, beginning, middle, end yeah. story that happens to involve spider-man yeah you know it's 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 you could you know they weren't like all giant cliffhangers for each other right yes no way you know far from home ended with a giant cliffhanger that was a credit cookie the movie was over it just right. gave you this huge tease for what's coming next yeah and so um, with all that being said what do you so at the end of the day with february unless you want to mention any other movies i mean you know cyrano's coming out limited and studio 666 it's or, good but i don't expect anyone to see it Right. So it's like, I think, do you think Uncharted then is just going to be the biggest movie of the month? Death on the Nile could, you know, Death on the Nile isn't, and I know you mentioned Uncharted. I promise I will get back to that. No, no, you're good. Death on the Nile is frankly the first big Fox movie, at least since Free Guy, that I think would have been a big hit in pre-COVID times. So I am very interested to see how well it does. If it performs halfway decently on a COVID curve, I think that will give fuel to the fire that Disney is not intentionally dumping all of these Fox films. That it's just the marketplace is what the marketplace is. And a two and a half hour star-driven grimdark remake of a 1940s uh, film noir like Nightmare Alley was never going to break out. You know, a two and a half hour star-driven hard R medieval, you know, melodrama about rape was never going to break out. You know, good movies but these would have bombed in the 1990s. They just would have been, wouldn't have been viewed as the existential threat to the very concept of theatrical movie going. Right. We were all sad in 1994 when Quiz Show and Shawshank Redemption and Ed Wood bombed, but it wasn't viewed as the end, you know, the end times. Yeah. Um, also because movies like Pulp Fiction were doing pretty well. <laughs> right. And films like Interview with a Vampire were considered, you know, high-tone blockbuster fare rather than impossibly aspirational studio vehicles. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no. And, and, oh, so I was just going to say then. No, no, um, yeah, I mean, that's probably completely fair. I mean, I, I do remember now but, that you're saying 
I just don't know what do you so I mean it is kind of tricky because like you said death on the Nile has you know I don't know I hope that it makes money but I just wonder what people it's just interesting because I just don't know what people are going to choose you know when they go to the movies because Uncharted like you said that's playing before everything right the trailer um and I just don't know what you know if you had to guess you know I guess if I had to ask you between those two I know it's putting you on the spot but if you had to pick what do you think at the end of the month it was well, the bigger well I guess one I like that I I did a post on like New Year's Day or New yeah. January second, where I list like what I think would be the biggest releases yeah. of each month. It's something I do just for fun. Yeah. Of course, ten seconds after I posted, they moved Morbius out of January. <laughs> so, whoops. <laughs> and but anyway, I don't remember which of those two movies I picked as the biggest one of February. <laughs> That's how unsure I am about. But you know what? Fine, you're putting me on the spot. I get it. It's fair. Um, I think Death on the Nile will be slightly better, bigger. Because it's a known entity that people know and like. Okay. And if if all things being equal, that tends to be the deal breaker. Something that people know and that they like. And there's something that was popular right now or two or three years ago. You know, and that's sort of the Sing 2 versus Matrix 4 situation. Right. Where, you know, Sing 2 was a sequel to a film that was popular right now or five years ago. But yeah. time moves slowly now or quickly now. Matrix Four was a sequel to something that was popular twenty three years ago. Right. So. Yeah, and Sing Two had you two in it, so that always gets a little bit of a bump in my book. But um, yeah, then we move to March, where I think the Batman's just fascinating because it's a weird date for it. I mean, I'm glad. I just hope it stays. Um, I don't like that it's oh, three yeah, it's, hours long. It's not going anywhere. Yeah, it won't go anywhere. They're oh. too far in. Oh, dude, are, you know, are you happy with the three hour runtime? <laughs> Commercially, I don't think it's going to make a difference. Yeah, I mean, most of the very biggest grossing movies of all time were over under two and a half hours, if not noticeably more so. Yeah. And I think the, you know, that running time really hasn't been an issue since multiplexes became mainstream in the mid-90s, mm -hmm. when you could have a movie showing on more than one screen at a time. And I, you know, especially in big cities or halfway decent populated areas, I imagine you will be able to see the Batman pretty much once every one to two hours, if you so choose. Yeah. I don't think that's going to be an issue. Now, there are plenty of places in America and elsewhere that might only have, you know, a, a three-screen multiplex an hour away that might be playing the Batman on two of those screens. That is unfortunate, mm -hmm. but it is a commercial reality. Yeah. Um, I do not think the runtime will be that much of a hindrance unless it stinks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, obviously, if it's not a good movie, then that's going to, you know, you're going to have people that are less likely to maybe take their friend that's a Batman nerd anyway, that might like it anyway to see it than if it were just a two hour motion picture. Um, I do, you know, I think there is a concern that people, and this may be just nonsense, you know, because of COVID, I'm willing to spend two hours in a theater, but not three hours. Mm. You know, it, again, it's, if, that is slightly irrational in my point of view. I'm not saying it's a not. I'm not saying it's irrational to not want to go to the movies. That's your, you know, that's your personal choice. That's not my place to judge. But I, you know, I will judge you if you say, you know, it's safe to spend 120 minutes, but not 180 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and I think the, the thing with Batman is it's weird because we haven't had a proper Batman movie since 2012 right unless i'm completely yes. blind because we had batman versus superman but so now when you're kind of looking at that you're looking ahead at, at that month how do you even like 
yeah, like how do you kind of forecast that when it's in that specific circumstance where it's an established character? We've had how many iterations now, but we haven't had a proper one in a decade. Here's the thing. And again, when I talk about the caveats, I'm not saying the film will flop. Okay. I'm saying the film not might might not make Aquaman business worldwide. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a danger in everyone saying it will automatically make a billion dollars because it's Batman, of course. Mm. Um, Batman Begins opened in summer 2005. The only thing it had going for it was it's a Batman movie. It's a good Batman movie. But you had a lot of actors that weren't box office draws, all due respect to Killian Murphy and Christian Bale and Katie Holmes and Liam Neeson to a certain extent, unless he's an added value element. Um, and you had them playing characters that were not marquee villains. The Scarecrow, Rachel Ghoul, Joe Chill, uh, uh, Falcone. And they did not look like, the, they mostly did not look like the comic book versions. You know, Scarecrow was just a guy in a burlap sack <laughs> or Killian Murphy in a sharp suit. Yep. Um, and, you know, Reza Gould turned out to be, you know, Liam Neeson in a suit. Um, so really all you had going for it was, oh, it's another Batman movie. As a result, the film was a hit, but you got to remember, it only did 205 million domestic and 371 million, 300, 370, 371 million worldwide on 150 budget amid a world where marketing was cheaper and you had a much more vibrant post-theatrical lifespan. Um, and now you have the Batman, which it's a dark and gritty Batman film. I don't know if you can take your kids. Spoiler, you can probably take your kids. They're not idiots. <laughs> um, you have a a guy that's a well-known person, but isn't a butts and seats draw, Robert Pattinson as Batman. Uh, I think him as Batman qualifies as an added value element, and that's good. You know, I think there are people that know of him, but have never seen a Robert Pattinson film that isn't a Twilight movie, Tenet, and maybe something else they caught on cable. You know, I, I don't think the, it's a good movie, but I don't think the Water for Elephant's Hive is going to come out in full force. You know, and I certainly know the the Cosmopolis Hive and the uh, you know the 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 what's the one he did with Tom Holland, ironically on Netflix, uh, oh, the Devil, Devil all, all the, the time. time. Yeah, you know, if you think this movie's going to automatically do Aquaman numbers just because it's you know it's it's Batman, you have delusions. Well, <laughs> Robert Pattinson, Devil all the time. Yeah. Um, it's starring three well-known actors that aren't butts and seats draws: Colin Farrell. Zoe Kravitz, and I guarantee nobody outside the bubble knows who Paul Dano is. Right. Playing characters that we've already seen in other Batman movies. Riddler, Tooth, Riddler Penguin, Catwoman. Yeah. Um, so I do think the film, you know, and again, when I talk about this, I think it's important that I reiterate that even if I'm right, these are reasons why the film will make most of the money, but not automatically make all the money. Mm -hmm. And that's only an issue if Oh no, it only opened to $100 million. Can this franchise be saved? Um, but I, I think it will do very well. It has very little competition between itself and ironically Morbius on April 1st. Um, Morbius is another film that would have been a crapshoot in pre-COVID times. And I don't know how well it's going to do. Jared Leto is not a Tom Hardy type draw. And Tom mm. Hardy isn't even a Tom Hardy type draw. But at least people like him. They yeah. know who he is. He's unproblematic. Um, and the idea of him 
going full Tom Hardy in a, in a movie like Venom had a certain appeal. Mm. Um, Jared Leno seems to be playing just, you know, a guy yeah. who happens to become a vampire. Okay. You know, and, I don't think we're going to see him having a bath with lobsters. <laughs> and I, um, I think that the move to April's weird because it moved to late April now, right? Yes. And that's, it I'm was, sorry, early April. April Early 1st. April. Oh, right, and right. And from what I was told, and again, if they want to lie to me, they can lie to me. That's fine. It was not COVID. You know, it, oh. Omicron didn't help. But at the end of the day, the, you know, Spider-Man was still kicking butt. Maybe they wanted to add some cameos from, from No Way Home. I don't know. And if they, A, if they... If they do that, they probably wouldn't tell me. If they did tell me, I probably wouldn't tell you. Um, but it's possible. Um, and I think in a vacuum, April 1st is a better day for a big movie than January 28th. Yeah. Big movies don't generally open on late January. The only one that did was Kung Fu Panda 3. That's because it wanted to open Jay and Date with China six years ago. Okay. Yeah. And I was going to say, I mean, I didn't know if they were just going to stay put in the early year just to ride the wave of Spider-Man, but I guess this gives it a little bit more time. Plus you yes. get Uncharted in February and then yes. a little bit more of a break and then you get Morbius. Maybe that is smarter for them. Um, and I think you kind of mentioned that Batman doesn't have a lot of competition. The only one um, in the immediate future of it, I think a, a week later or two weeks later is the Operation Fortune, the Guy Ritchie. Uh, yeah, which, you know, um, I mean, Wrath of Man and the Gentleman both did really well. Considering. They did on a, on a curve. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what the budget on Wrath of Man was, mm -hmm. but I know it did like $110 million worldwide, which is one of Jason Statham's biggest grossing R-rated non-franchise solo action movies ever under yeah. any circumstances. Huh. Behind, well, I mean, The Transporter 3 was PG-13. Yeah. And the other one was Mechanic uh, Resurrection, which yeah. did like $120 million including like 50 million in China in, in late summer 2016. Mm. Otherwise, Wrath of Man is it. That's a film that performed exactly as it would have done, best case scenario, without COVID. Yeah, and it's, do you think that it's, I mean, because I didn't, I, I didn't even know that they were, Guy Ritchie was already in production on another one with Jason Statham at the forefront of it again. And then when I saw the trailer, it was kind of like, oh, I didn't know it. <laughs> it felt weird. So do you think that at, do you think that plays into, you know, will moviegoers go and see Operation Fortune just because it doesn't look similar to Wrath of Man, but if you see Guy no, Ritchie, yeah, like it's completely <laughs> different tones, but you just see Jason Statham. I don't, I'm not used to seeing him that much at one time. On, You're you know, right. On, yeah. Because um, he kind of took a break for a while. He yeah. was, you know, he spent a lot of time doing, or, you know, took his time doing very big supporting roles in the Fast franchise. Right. Obviously, he starred in Hobbs and Shaw. He co-starred in Spy. You know, it's, it's, it's Wrath of Man was, I think it was his first solo R-rated action movie since Mechanic Resurrection. So which begs the question is, did co-starring in the Fast franchise and Spy raise his profile a little bit? Yeah. And The Meg, which was a massive yes. success in summer 2018. That did 530 million on 150 budget. Yeah. They're 135. Um, yeah. so the question is, did, you know, were some people who showed up for those franchise films more likely to check out a Justice Jason Statham actioner? Normally I would say no, but when these films are cheap, you don't need a bunch of people to do that. Yeah. And are you a Jason Statham fan? I know my cousin is okay. Cause my cousin yeah. loves like, you know, the Fast and Furious, Vin Diesel and Jason Statham movies. Um, and yeah, Wrath of Man. Did you like Wrath of Man? I did. Yeah. I thought it was, it was interesting. I thought, did you see it? I did, yes. 
Yeah, I thought it was a little too convoluted for its own good. Yeah, uh, I admired its ambition, but there was a part of me that liked it a little bit more when it was just a, just a very straightforward, grim, dark revenge story. Yeah. Versus, well, I think some of the the narrative pretzeling where it's like, okay, it's kind of your fault that all this happened, so I'm a little <laughs> less sympathetic for you now. Yeah. But I get it. On the other hand, you know, yeah. kudos for being creative. So. And what um, about the gentleman though? Because I love that one when it came out, but I enjoyed the gentleman. Okay. Uh, it didn't do much for me. But I think it's a fascinating metaphor, intentional or not, of Guy Ritchie trying to stay on the top of the Hollywood food chain while a bunch of up-and-comer, not-a-white-guy filmmakers are trying to take his place and chip at his supremacy. Mm. Um, And I think it's interesting in that regard. Um, And obviously, it was very well acted. Once again, I'm reminded that you know, actors like Charlie Unum are a lot more fun when they're not mm-hmm. being plugged into generic mega-budget action movies. You know, it's like, oh, that's why they thought he was a star. I get it now. Because yeah. you don't get that from Pacific Rim or King Arthur. I was just going to say King Arthur. <laughs> yeah. And uh, unfortunately, I think that's a problem for leading men in general. Yeah. Is that they, everyone wants to make the next Tom Cruise, but they keep casting him in legend over and over again. Yeah. Um, you know, Henry Golding is wonderfully charismatic in The Gentleman, Crazy Rich Asians, uh, A Simple Favor, but he's duller than dishwater in Snake Eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, now I don't want to see him as James Bond. So, nice job. <laughs> oh, and you know what? Snake Eyes, that was the, also the one where <laughs> the origin, that's, I'm sorry, that yeah. just hit me again. That oh, was the yeah, other exactly. one. exactly. Where it's like you waited, you know, and I had a feeling when you saw the trailers and there's so much of him without the costume yeah. on. And then at the end they show it. So I had a feeling, but it's, it is frustrating because now it's like, well, are you even going to get a sequel? <laughs> you know, no, are we ever going to see not. Snake Eyes? So, yeah. So. Um, and I'm someone that likes the first G.I. Joe movie, The Rise of yeah, Cobra. I, yeah. I will, I will fight, you know, I will uh, ride or die on that one. A, I like Stephen Summers' movies, most of them. B, I don't know if you've seen The Rise of Cobra. Yes. I don't know if you've seen it recently, but that film is absolutely a template for the stereotypical MCU movie. Uh, About, you know, two years before audiences started being able to embrace unapologetic G-wish schmaltz like Thor without, you know, apologizing for it or feeling guilty about it. But that film was about two years ahead of the curve. Mm. It's funny because those are like nostalgia movies for me because I think I was, when did the first one come out? 2010? 2009. 2009. So I was eight. <laughs> so I, oh, wow. I, I had, a, yeah, I had all the action figures and. How old yeah. are you? I'm 20. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I, uh, I was 28. I was 29 when that film came out. <laughs> I'm very old. Oh no. I didn't mean to date you with, <laughs> with no, my no, nostalgia no, for it. It's fine. Um, um, but, I'm almost old enough to star in my own legacy sequel. <laughs> Spoiler, I die in the third act. Well, maybe you'll be in Jackass, uh, The Last Stand. I don't know what the next <laughs> exactly. one will be called. Yes. Um, but yeah, so I mean, to get back, I'm sorry, I took us on such a long tangent with no, Guy Ritchie. I, I, I'm usually the one that goes on tangents. Uh, no, but and so, I mean, with March, there's not really much else. I mean, The Lost City was, I keep seeing That's the, another one that, you know, you get the, we get the film industry we deserve. Yeah. <laughs> if you're someone that wants more than comic book movies, if you're someone yeah. that wants more than nostalgic IP revamps, Perfect example right there. The Last City. It's a an original ripoff, don't remake of Romancing the Stone. Uh, it's got Sandra Bullock, who still is a name. I mean, my gosh, like 200 million you know, hours worth of people watch The Unforgivable on Netflix. That is, A, it's not very good. B, the only reason to watch that movie. 
The only reason to watch that movie is Sandra Bullock. Mm. Um, but, you know, will people show up for this distinctly old school studio programmer? Or will they stay home willfully and while the internet complains, oh, it wasn't marketed well. <laughs> right, right. I mean, they did throw Brad Pitt, Pitt in it at the end of the yeah. trailer, which is <laughs> imagine how nice it could have been if they could, if they were in a position to not reveal that. Right. I get why they did. I don't blame yeah. them. But you know, it's 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 frustrating. It's yeah. been frustrating. It's, it's it's been getting worse. But there, there there's with the obvious caveat that online film bubbles do not represent the real world. Yeah. There has been an issue for at least as long as I've been doing this, you know, since you were eight years old, of people not showing up to see the things that they claim that they want in theaters, why those films are in theaters. Mm. Um, I mean, you, you know, you were too young to remember a time when, you know, schlock like Vantage Point, which you probably never even heard of, could make 70 million domestic and 100 worldwide. And, you know, again, when I get nostalgic for films celebrating their, you know, 10, 20, 30 year anniversary. It's not the franchise films that I know would get made today. It's the it's the high tone garbage that I know wouldn't. <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 you know, Wild Hogs is a terrible picture, but my God, can you imagine or a piece of garbage Tim Allen, John Travolta, William H Macy motorcycle movie from Disney could open to forty six million dollars and open it? You can. Fifteen years ago, it was possible. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I think this is like, you know, I'll have to have you on another time when you have time just to talk about, I mean, it's just interesting though, hearing because you've been doing this for so long, you know, and how the industry changed. And you keep mentioning film Twitter, which is always a fun thing to talk about because it's just so divisive. And I see, you know, I mean, I don't know how bad you get it because I know, I feel like, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know. Some people get. First of all, I'm a white guy. So by default, it's at least a couple (laughs) of scales below. Right. But having said that, I mean, my issue is that I don't particularly care about any fandom anymore. Mm-hmm. And every fandom treats their fandom like a cult. So right. everyone thinks I hate them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, but, you know, relatively speaking. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I guess with March, is there any other movies you even want to mention? I think that the, I feel like Batman's kind of the Batman's the big thing, you know? Yeah, and you know, it, it's for the record, you know, I, 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 I have not seen the Batman yet. Right. Uh, I'm assuming I'll see it in the next two to three weeks. I like Matt Reeves movies. I like every Matt Reeves movie I've seen, even the Paul Bearer. I, you know, if nothing else, I expect the Batman to be a very good film. Uh, so, you know, if for nothing else, you know, I, you know, even when I write my why and might not break all the records, I'm not saying it's going to be bad. And I'm not even going to say it's not going to be successful. I'm sure it will, relatively speaking, especially if they kept the budget under 175. But, you know, I, 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 I there is a difference between, I, I don't think it's going to be the next Spider-Man No Way Home. Mm. And I think you know, I don't even think it's gonna be next Aquaman. And I think expe- setting expectations up like that can occasionally backfire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, get um, ready then. I guess for people to say that you're <laughs> you're a hater, you know. But you know, we kind of you know what? Me. Sometimes uh-huh. I say, "Hey, let's dump our expectations," and it turns out that the film really does really well. Yeah. You know, Captain Marvel did as well as everybody hoped. It did do a billion dollars. Right. I thought it'd be you know I was in a position where. I, you know, they'll be thrilled with 800. Let's see what happens first. Um, same thing with, you know, The Force Awakens. You know, oh, you know, come on, guys. It's not going to open to $300 million. Well, it didn't, but it did open to 250. So that's pretty spectacular. 
So then I guess, I don't know if this fan base will even come after you at all, because I don't know if anybody cares about it, but the Fantastic Beasts and the, what is this next one? The Secrets of Dumbledore. <laughs> now, I, I'm saying that from a position of, I've never watched a Harry Potter movie in full, so I can't really speak on it, but I, I you know, you hear about all the stuff going on behind the scenes and, you know, maybe that, maybe like Army Hammer and the other one, it may That's be- That's another online scandal that nobody okay. outside the bubble cares about. Okay. Should they care? Maybe. That's, that's a, that's a different conversation, but they don't, we know they don't because during, you know, COVID and onward, the Harry Potter franchise is and has remained a very hot title on the VOD rental charts. Mm. People are still paying money to consume those films. The reason if Fantastic Three bombs will be because people kind of like the first Fantastic Beasts, didn't like the second one, and now don't give a darn about the third one. And we've seen that before. We've seen that with Divergent. We've seen that with the you know, three attempts to reboot the Terminator franchise, Salvation, Genosis, and Dark Fate. And I would argue we've seen that with X-Men. With, if, you, if you count X-Men Days of Future Blast as sort of like a glorified X-Men 4 that was sort of treated like a sequel to X-Men X2 and X3, then you've got X-Men First Class, which is a terrific film. It's my favorite of the X-Men movies that did okay. And then you had X-Men Apocalypse, which didn't do all that well, but did okay. But nobody liked it because it was terrible. Mm-hmm. And then you had Dark Phoenix with the chickens coming home to roost, which nobody showed up. And I, I genuinely think that's what we're going to see with Fantastic Beasts. Yeah, and I mean, the, to- the total worldwide grosses did drop. Not, I mean, you know, it went from and 800. It's in a vacuum. Yeah. Dropping from eight fifteen to six fifty is or six sixty is fine. <laughs> fine. Yeah. You know, yeah. if they can keep that going for the rest of the franchise, they'll be awesome. Yeah. But I don't think they will. Yeah. Well, you did um, get you got the first one right on the money. It was eight fourteen. Second one was six fifty four. But I was like, oh, I thought it was six fifty nine. Okay, yeah. Still very close. Um, and another one in April I wanted to mention was. Uh, well, you did mention Sonic, but Ambulance. What do you think about that? Because that's Michael Bay, who is a name, and you have Jake Gyllenhaal and um, who's I can't remember who's co-starring in it. Um, the, the wonderful human being who stars ours in Aquaman, uh, um, The Matrix Resurrections. Yes, uh, Yaya uh, Abdul Mateen. Thank you. I let you do that because I was screwed up. <laughs> I'll let you get called problematic on Twitter for me, <laughs> which you didn't do, by the way. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey. I'm Asian, so I can get away with it. Exactly. Um, but, explain the joke. <laughs> but with you know, but with <laughs> with the ambulance, it is kind of tricky. I mean, hey, that's my birthday weekend, so I'll be turning 21, going to see ambulance. Um, but I feel like that's an interesting case because that's kind of that to me of all these movies we've talked about. That seems like the most like a throwback, mindless action movie that you know. I don't know. <laughs> it's just are people going to go even see this? And with Jake Gyllenhaal, it's just funny because of the Taylor Swift stuff. So I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't, Again, I don't think anyone's going to care about that. Nobody's going to care about that. Um, if you're somebody that, you know, I don't think there are that many people that like Jake Gyllenhaal, but now don't because of, you know, that he might've, and again, we're not talking about allegations of abuse or non-consensual right, intercourse right. or anything that severe. This is an army hammer territory here. This is just, he was a mediocre boyfriend. Um, <laughs> But having said that, you know, she got by. Um, anyway, whatever. I'm getting off the plot. No, I, 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 you know, at this point, we're in a situation where Rose is on par with, with 13 hours or pain and gain would be aspirational in this, in this environment. Okay. 
And I apologize for not knowing those stats off the top of my head. I do know Gate opened with $24 million in April 2013. Uh, I know uh, 13 soldiers opened with, I think, like $15 million in, in early in January 2016. Um, and I think, A, Universal isn't dumb. They know what to spend. They know what to budget on movies like that. Mm. And that's a film where, you know, if it doesn't do great in theaters, it will do well on Peacock. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know if we're entering a situation where, at least for now, studios treat smaller scale studio programmers as theatrical loss leaders so they can have A-level streaming content. Mm. But I do think that is a possible strategy going forward. Because, I mean, look, we ain't getting a Jungle Cruise sequel based on theatrical grosses. Right. Uh, that movie cost $200 million to make, and it made about two twenty million worldwide. It ain't getting a sequel just on theatrical grosses. I don't care how much it made on Disney Plus Premier Access. Right. You know, if that made like $100 million on Premier Access, we'd know about it. Right. Um. Um, but... Yeah, I think to a certain extent, people did watch it. People were waiting for Disney Plus, unfortunately, just like they're waiting for Enchanto, Encanto, like they were waiting for you know Mulan and Ray and the Last Dragon and so forth. And I think there's there may be a formula, and I don't know, you know, for where Disney looks at these films as okay, it doesn't matter if they break even, you know, break make money or even break even theatrical, as long as the perception is that people like them. And the perception is an ungodly amount of people watch them on Disney Plus because right now that's our priority. I don't know if that's a if I'm right. And if I am right, I don't know if that's a good strategy because I think right now most of the people that subscribe to Disney Plus for Marvel, Lucasfilm, Pixar, etc., have already done so. And Wall Street clearly doesn't care about retention in terms of stock prices. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem that all the streaming platforms have right now. Right. You know, Netflix may have only earned, you know, 8 million new subscribers in the last quarter, but they also didn't lose 8 million new subscribers in the last quarter. You know, it's, it's, it's as much as I hate saying nice things about Netflix, you know, the, the retention should count. Mm-hmm. And I think that if the great streaming experiment goes down in flames, it'll be because Wall Street doesn't care about retention. Mm-hmm. And there is a there is a plateau in terms of subscriptions in each market. And they're in a situation where they can't stop spending much money on content because it's an arms race now, you know, and they can't, they can only raise their prices so much to where it no longer becomes a value. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I think you were just talking. No, that's okay. And I just was thinking how long we've been in COVID that you were mentioning uh, Raya, which was last year, but also Mulan, which was 2020. Uh, So I just can't believe how long we've been uh, going through this cycle with streaming and everything. Um, And I don't want to keep you too much longer, but a couple, I just wanted to mention two more major titles. Uh, The first one was The Northman, which I just think is unique because um, The Witch, because that's Robert Eggers, right? And were you a fan of The Witch and or The Lighthouse? I enjoyed it. Okay. It was one of those movies that came out of it like, I feel like I'm panning it because I only gave it three stars. Hmm. But you know what? It's not the film's responsibility to live up to the hype. It's pretty good. Go see it. As for The Lighthouse, I like The Lighthouse. The Lighthouse for me is a film that felt like an apology from A24 for how commercial and mainstream uh, Midsummer turned out to be. Hmm. It's like, sorry, this turned out to be a date movie. We won't do that again. Here's The Lighthouse. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Um, which is funny because, yeah, just two guys yelling at each other for... Yeah, it's, uh, for, it's, um, but I was surprised by how well The Witch did. I actually didn't know it made yeah. $40 million. I was surprised, which I don't remember like the... 25 domestic off an $8.8 .8 million opening. So yeah. It was pretty leggy, especially for a horror film. That's something to remember, by the way, because yeah. whenever a horror film debuts and gets a, a lousy cinema score grade, oh no, moviegoers have no taste. The movie is doomed. <laughs> and then the movie legs out anyway because the people that are inclined to like it will still show up over the long haul. Mm. You know, her, 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 you know, everybody wrote about Hereditary uh, getting a D cinema score from a 12 and a half million opening in summer 2018. Not that many people also wrote about it, you know, making almost $50 million domestic. <laughs> it was a leggy movie. Why? Because the, the cinema score grade was made up of people that showed up on opening weekend, a lot of whom, amazingly, did not know what they were getting into and reacted accordingly. But the people that showed up after opening weekend generally knew what they were getting into, for better or worse. And a quick question about uh, the cinema score, because I hear, you know, you know what I know what that is, but and you know, I know that they use that a lot, but I've never been do they take those numbers from press screenings or from the opening weekend? I thought it was the opening they weekend. They take that from opening weekend, usually opening night, okay. for paid consumers. Okay. You know, it's not perfect, but it is by far the best immediate measurement of what general audiences think of a movie. Because you can't game the poll like with a Rotten Tomatoes user score or an IMDb user score. You know, you can't make it a trending topic by, you know, having a bunch of people send out 100 tweets at once. It is unblemished, you know, unvarnished people that showed up and bought a ticket, watched the whole movie because you, they come out afterwards and tell you what they thought of it. Okay, and do they only do that in like LA, New York? Because I personally have not ever. Oh, from what I acknowledge, they do it nationwide. I've, it's weird. I've never seen that. I, you know, I've gone to a lot of movies on opening night. I've never seen them take that down before, and I've I've always wondered because I you hear that, and then I was like, I don't, I don't know if this is just a exclusive markets kind of thing. Um, and it's it's frustrating when people you know because you know it's it's you know Iron Man three got an A from Cinema Score. Star Trek Into Darkness got an A from Cinema Score. The Last Jedi got an A from Cinema Score. People like they like these movies. Yeah. Twitter may have had a conniption after the fact, <laughs> but I guarantee the average general audience consumer did not walk out of Star Trek Into Darkness going, "Oh, it's the worst Star Trek ever." They they ruined Star Trek. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying they all loved it, but they all probably came out and saying that was that was fine. I enjoyed that. Maybe I'll see it again when it's on DVD, and then never thought about it again. So how much does it frustrate you then? And I, I'm sorry, this is off on a tangent, but you were just mentioning that where I feel like with film Twitter now, I noticed the trend is, oh, now we're going to appreciate movies that were crapped on. And I think, yes. And I'm, I think you could probably guess where I'm going with this with Amazing Spider-Man 2. You know, I think you would even, I think you might've tweeted something. It's like, well, where's, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you're something like, well, where does everybody in 2014, right? And I think now everybody's calling for the third one for obvious reasons. But how is that frustrating for you now? Because it's, you know, every I feel like that's the thing now. We all love. I'm trying to think of a crappy superhero movie. There's plenty of them, but I can't think of well, one. There. You know, you can tweet that. You know, the two. And I don't hate it, but like the Tim Story Fantastic Four movie was actually yeah. okay, and you'll right. get like five thousand retweets. It'll be a trending topic. Yes. Like, I'm old enough. To, I was there. You were there. You were like probably like five years old or something. Yeah. Um. But you know, I I I was there. You know, it, I, I think there's this weird thing of trying to reclaim every bad movie as as unloved in its time, and 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 
I think to us, you know, in a vacuum, that would be harmless. Who cares if people, if there's a group of people that think that Scream 4 is good now or that Grease 2 isn't that bad. But I think when it skews the discourse and we, you know, you end up making, you know, you make, you know, pop culture decisions based on that, you know, you know, people spent 10 years saying MacGruber was an unloved masterpiece and it just deserved a second chance. Do you know anyone that watches the MacGruber show on Peacock? I watched a few episodes. It's fine. Mm -hmm. I may finish it eventually. <laughs> it would surprise me if it gets a second season. From, from what I know, nobody watches it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I forgot it was a thing until I was actually using Peacock the other day, and they were promoting yeah. it pretty heavily. But I forgot that they don't. You know, I haven't seen it on the internet or on TV or anything. Um, and it's this weird conundrum where, especially as pop culture gets more streaming centric. Mm. When we, if we're in a situation where there's no box office, right. there's no third party variation on the stats that we do get. The only thing that's going to matter is are people paying attention to this online, and the only thing that you and gets immediate online traction, and you know trending topics viral on Twitter, you know BuzzFeed articles, fans already love this, are things that people have heard of. So, yeah, do I think people, you know, in the first weekend at least would watch Solo 2 if they paid it on Disney Plus? Maybe. That doesn't mean Solo wasn't a justifiable flop. Mm. Solo had its chance. Right. It bombed badly. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody showed up. Yeah. Even with halfway decent reviews. Mm. And that's another thing. Just because a good movie flopped doesn't mean it was underrated. That's you know, a there's point. a difference between underrated and more people should have seen this film mm -hmm. or so, this film was never going to be a blockbuster okay so then we're on that you know meter that you have there what would you say for scott pilgrim because that's one of my favorite ones and again that's a perfect example yeah where the online bubble did not represent the nation general audience consensus okay that's a perfect example that's one that i use a lot to be frank yeah. you know that one uh dread you know judge yes, Dead 3D. Yes. um the first kick-ass Mm -hmm. um, uh, John Carter you know John Carter did not bomb because of the marketing John Carter bombed because they spent 250 million dollars for a movie that looked like generic blockbuster the movie hoping that people would mistake it for the next avatar now there are plenty of smart people that like John Carter I certainly don't regret them that and there's a there's a case to be made for a Disney like a studio like Disney throwing a quarter of a billion dollars and a never gonna work highfalutin fantasy adventure film from a guy that can just come back and make a Pixar sequel for them. But that doesn't mean that John Carter was underrated. It doesn't mean that it was, you know, on the verge of being a hit if they had just given it a different title or slightly better trailers. You know, to quote The Matrix Reloaded, and The Matrix Resurrection was always going to flop too, what happened happened, and couldn't have happened any other way. <laughs> Yeah, and that's completely fair. And I think we've talked a lot about different franchise movies, some slop, some not. And I think the perfect way to kind of close this episode out is talking about Doctor Strange briefly. Um, I don't know. It's weird because I, I feel like it's been a while since we've had a non-Spider-Man Marvel movie. And that's only because Eternals was quite forgettable. I forget that that came out. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, say what you want about the film. I think we were actually similar on our worst, not worst of the year, whatever list you had that was. I, I put it on the worst of the year. Okay, so Eternals. I did too. And did you have Black Widow on there as well? I didn't, but it's, it's, I was tempted. I just didn't want to, you know, 
I think Black Widow at least is is, and I don't think it's a good movie. Right. I think part of the problem is that it came out, you know, two or three, four years too late. Yeah. And it without getting into a Marvel discourse. Right, right, right. I think it was a film that instead of trying to be a quality approximation of Bourne slash atomic blonde type spy movies, it was a mediocre approximation that begged on a slowly growing fan base that doesn't watch anything else. And I think that is bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so now you have Doctor Strange, which I think is a weird case because it's been six years almost since his first one. Yeah. It's and been six and a half years. And his character itself has changed so drastically, right? I think 2000, was it 16 or 17? Five, wait, wait, five and a half. I'm sorry. Five and a half. Okay. It was late 2016. Okay. Well, you know, and I think with the case of Doctor Strange, I think, I don't know, I don't remember critical reviews when it came out, but I don't think many people Generally liked positive. it. I was okay. the asshole that dropped the first negative review on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, well, at I least I didn't mean st- to, but... Well, at least Disney's I wait, still I wait inviting you to stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, um, at least, you know, you're oh, still yeah, good. I mean, you know, it's, it's... They don't seem to care. Because yeah, yeah. they know if the film does well commercially, I'll have to write nice things about them for that. Yeah, well, that's fair. And so I just think with his case, I mean, you have Elizabeth Olsen also co Is she co-starring in it, or is she just... As far as I know, yes. Okay, so I think that it's a returning character, right? And after Spider-Man, that's what everybody was talking about because that was the post-credits tag and everything. Um, so I don't know. Do you expect this to do better than the first Doctor? Because Doctor Strange did do well, if I'm not mistaken, correct? It did made $677 million on a $170 budget, give or take. I, obviously, I would expect this to do well, COVID curve notwithstanding. Uh, because, you know, it, the first one made $100 million in China. We don't even know if it's going to play in China. And that that's this huge, weird variable where in, on a non in a non COVID world, they wouldn't even need China, right? You know, again, Doctor Strange did not live or die by the hundred million dollars it made in China, right? As is the case for a lot of big splashy hit movies that also did very well in China. You know, that's one of the dirty little secrets is that most of the movies that kicked ass in China kicked ass everywhere else too. Yeah. Well, you, know, so you have like, you know, Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom makes one point three billion dollars. They're not staying up at night worried about that 267 in China. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yes, I do expect it to do better. With the exception of, of Avengers Age of Ultron and Iron Man 2, every Marvel Part 2 has made more domestically and worldwide than the Marvel Part 1. Iron Man 2 made more worldwide than Iron Man, but less domestically. Avengers Age of Ultron made less domestically, less worldwide, but more just overseas than the Avengers. So there's no circumstance where it is made less across the board than its predecessor. Will it be a breakout sequel or will it merely have an upswing on par with, you know, Thor the Dark World, which the first one made uh, 449, excuse me, yeah, 449. 49, the second one made 644. Uh, I don't have the math in front of me, but 677 times, like that'd be like 850, I think, which would be great under any circumstance, especially if it's good. Um, So, yeah, the movie, they have nothing to worry about. Yeah, and I um, think, but what you just said there, you kind of, now you're going to expect Marvel fans are going to be like, well, you're saying it's not as good as Spider-Man, because um, it won't make that, right? Because I think the expectations are going to be too high for that. No, right? I mean, only, only respect. Only an idiot would expect it to do Spider-Man business. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't mean it won't, but expecting it to, it's not good. Yeah. 
but it won't because you have a normal summer slate, especially after June. Yes. In June. Um, and you don't have the Christmas thing where you have that those two weeks where everybody's off school. Right. Which is an unmatchable variable in terms of legs. Yeah, I think this one's coming out when, like, I know yeah. my college graduation's coming out, but it's not really, Very kids aren't going to be, yeah, like, kids aren't going to be running out, I guess. Um, You're graduating from college at the age of 21? Yes, yeah. Mazel. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, for the people that want to check you out, do you want to plug your Twitter? Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm at, at Forbes. Uh, I've, please Google some combination of the ticket booth, uh, Scott Mendelson, Forbes. I'm at Twitter at, at Scott Mendelson. At Scott Mendelson. And I have a Facebook page, which is mostly just for cat photos and family stuff. If you want to be creepy, you're welcome to join. But most of my <laughs> movie stuff is on Twitter. Okay. And it's very funny stuff. I find a lot of your commentary replies very funny. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to be on this episode. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. I'll have to have you back on sometime. Thank you. Thank you very much.